Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 410 of the podcast. My name's Carrie, and it is so good to have you here. I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, Really excited to bring you John Ramstead today. Uh, John's got a fascinating story, and uh, we talk about what it was like to train to fly a Tomahawk F-14, exactly the same plane, uh, if you remember, from the movie Top Gun, and uh, all the lessons he learned in quick decision-making in a crisis and how to become resilient. Today's episode is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. Book your free digital strategy session today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And by World Vision, you can sign up for their free web series with Danielle Strickland by going to worldvision.org forward slash Carrie. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Well, uh, I'm so excited to have John on the podcast today. He's a keynote speaker, a trainer, a former combat Navy fighter pilot, a leadership coach, and a podcast host. He was named by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 12 podcast leaders need to listen to. And uh, he's got a fascinating and actually uh, inspiring story. He went through a number of personal tragedies. We'll talk about that. He came back. He actually gave this interview while receiving oxygen for COVID-19. He is right now still a long hauler. So remember him in your prayers. And uh, but he had a devastating accident uh, about a dozen years ago, 10 years ago, uh, a strange like freak horseback accident that almost killed him. And prior to that, uh, his career in the military was ended with a softball accident. So uh, a number of things, but he keeps bouncing back and he's got this amazing attitude and so much insight on how to make really quick decision making and how he rose to the top of his class. That story I'm going to remember for years. So you're in for a real treat. Hey, thank you all of you who keep sharing about this podcast. We're having some incredible, well, an incredible year, some incredible months. A lot of you are new to listening, so just want to say welcome. Really glad you're here. Uh, If you enjoy these episodes, subscribe, share it with a friend. And here's the goal, just to bring you the -the behind-the-scenes leadership conversations with top leaders from business and from the church space so that, uh, you know, these would be the kinds of conversations you would have, I would hope, if you got to go out for lunch with them or hang out at their place. And that's what we're committed to doing. And thank you so much to our partners. We really, really appreciate them. Promedia Fire, man, I'll tell you, <laughs> it was a year ago the world changed. And are you getting ready to hire a staff member in 2021 to win the digital game? Well, you got a couple of options if you do. One is you can just bring someone on your staff, right? That's an expert in one or two main areas. Or you can hire Promedia Fire, and then you get an entire team of experts for less than the cost of a single professional staff hire. With ProMedia Fire, you save on employee taxes, health insurance, but you get an entire team of expertise at your fingertips. So the choice is yours. Book your free strategy session today at ProMediaFire.com forward slash growth. That's ProMediaFire.com forward slash growth. And uh, listen, we are all aware of how difficult this season has been for anybody leading anything, especially for pastors. It's been really, really difficult. And Many of you as church leaders are caring for the souls of struggling congregants, but here's what you're discovering. (laughs) My soul's not in very good shape. So uh, our partner, World Vision, is called to serve the most vulnerable around the world, but also feels called to serve you. And that includes caring for you. So here's what they've done. 
A lot of you know Danielle Strickland, one of my favorite leaders. She's been a uh, multiple-time guest on this podcast. I'm sure she'll be back. And she's got a new resource called Soul Care Prayer Posture. She's actually talked about it on this podcast, and it's something I am trying to practice in my spiritual life. And she's got a free web series. So in that series, Danielle will share rhythms and practices to help create space for God to tend to your soul. And she'll give you some free tools you can use as you lead others. So if you want to check that out, I'd encourage you to do it. Sign up for the free web series today by going to worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. And check that out today. It will be good for your soul. Well, without much further ado, let's dive into my conversation with John Ramstead. John, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you. Oh, Carrie, it's so great to be on here with you. And uh, my goodness, man, just our, our conversations together always are just enriching, but uh, more, they're also equip- equipping and inspiring. So just thank you for what you're doing and uh, who you are and the work, work you're just hard at, my friend. Well, listen, you're working pretty hard. I mean, we'll get to this a little bit later, but you are right now recovering from COVID. And uh, those of you who are watching this on YouTube can probably see evidence of that right now with the uh, oxygen. But uh, I appreciate your stamina and your willingness to have this conversation. I don't want to start there, though, John. I want to go back. Um, you started your career or close to starting the career. Uh, you were you um, flew a fighter pilot, right? For uh, t- tell us a little bit about about that experience. Like this is this is like uh, like Top Gun kind of flying, correct? Yeah, I actually uh, was able to fly the F fourteen Tomcat, the jet that was in Top Gun, the one that Maverick flew. No way. That, yeah, that movie came out in nineteen eighty six, and I was in. <sighs> I graduated college in eighty eight, and I was in college on a Navy. ROTC scholarship. So imagine the, the crazy timelines coming together with that movie. Uh, and I'd wanted to be a fighter pilot since I was a kid. Wow. And uh, so, oh my, yeah, the, I, the timing couldn't have been better, but worse. What made it worse? Well, it was so popular. Everybody <laughs> wanted to go do it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I watched that movie where just where I was, you know, this affected my leadership, even down to things I've had to work through. When I watched that movie, Carrie, I'll never forget walking out of that theater with a different feeling coming over me than probably everybody else. And that was actually one of almost being a little despondent and embarrassed because I watched that movie and said, I could never do that. I actually got back to college and I was so convinced that I would fail at that and be embarrassed myself that when I wrote down on my selection seat, I didn't even put down aviation. I put down submarines because it's engineering. I was an engineer. I knew I could do well at that. Surface ships and intelligence. How did you end up flying it then? Well, it just festered inside me. Like this sense of giving up on myself and giving Mm. up on a dream was bugging me. And thank goodness I reached out to my dad to tell him what I'd done and how I was feeling. He, he was just proud of me wherever I went. Um, and we had this great conversation and I realized, you know what, I have this, I'm at like this lie in the road. Either I follow my dreams and do something that's going to be really hard. And I, yes, I could fail at, or I make a choice to take what would really for me be the easy route, something that's really engineering based that I would, I know I'd be good at, but I don't know that I would love. Hmm. And I got, and so I said, okay, I'm going to bet on myself because I'm going to choose to believe what other people are seeing in me at the time. 
and, and follow that path. So I got into flight school. We were told heading down there, Carrie, that, and I never verified if this was true, but it sure felt like it, that only because it's so popular because of the movie, only one out of every 10,000 people that apply right now because of Top Gun are going to fly a fighter. Oh, wow. So I'm like, what did I just sign myself up for? <laughs> Odds so are like, not in my know, favor. <laughs> yeah. You know, most of naval aviation is, you know, cargo ships, helicopters, right? It's not yeah. fighter squadrons. If you look at what we, what the Navy owns and I'm heading down to flight school and I'm kind of, kind of freaking out. It's kind of like, and my dad pulls me aside, gave me some of the best advice I'd ever been given. I followed it my entire life. He said, John, when you get down there, there's going to be a student and they're going to be ahead of you. So you're not competing with them, right? We competed by classes. And he goes, he's going to, everybody's going to be talking about him. He's going to be the ace of the base. He is doing something differently. So you go find that guy, you go buy him a beer and you ask him if he will share with you what he's doing. Well, I got down to Pensacola, Florida to flight school. And sure enough, there was one guy everybody was talking about. His name was John Foster. And I got to know him. He actually became one of my closest friends and he shared with me how he prepared and studied in his mindset. And I tell you, it was radically different than I would have ever done on my own and that everybody around me was doing. And by following his mentorship and, and doing this together as like wingmen, him coaching me, I ended up beating John's grades and I ended up graduating number one in my class. Wow. And only the number one person actually gets to choose what they fly. And I got to tell you, I credit that. And I had, you know, pilots that had more ability than me. It was my dad's, give me that advice. And then also, um, being willing to not only find a mentor, here's what I found it was, you got to go find somebody that has succeeded in what you want to do. Then you have to figure out what they did to achieve that success. And I, and I've also learned, I have to be very careful with mentors. I, I, I was, I was offered to be mentored by a guy who was a billionaire, but he was on his third wife and he didn't have any relationship with his kids. Wow. And I was really excited at first. And I said, I realized, you know what, I'm going to grow the same fruit on my tree that he has. Hmm. So I could, I could be wealthy and <laughs> lonely and miserable. <laughs> but anyway, so you got to look at what outcomes that they have, what, what they did, how they did it, what price they paid. Then you have to ask yourself, are you willing to pay that price? So what were his secrets back at the base? What did he tell you that changed your thinking? Well, here's one of the things he said. He goes, listen, it is not the best pilots that graduate number one. It is the best students. Everybody is, is focusing on what he called air work instead of head work. And he goes, here's the deal. In the cockpit, the, the, it is incredibly dynamic. The instructors are inducing stressful situations to see how you think and make decisions um, under stressful conditions. You'll be flying along and all of a sudden they just throw an emergency at you or they just start quizzing you on the hydraulic system or you're doing it. I mean, the, they're constantly asking you questions while you're supposed to be doing a complex maneuver. Here's, so here's what John had me do. He said, do you know how to juggle? And I actually did. I learned in high school during our speaking class. It was part of our deal. I go, I do. He goes, good. I want you to take a three by five cards and write down anything that could be asked of you in the cockpit. And I wrote down everything from every system, avionics, hydraulics, instrument systems. I mean, you name it. I had literally thousands of three by five cards. And I divided them up into sections and then I would juggle. So I'm doing something physical 
Well, my roommates or my girlfriend would quiz me. And if I got one wrong, I would redo the whole stack. Oh my goodness. And I told John, I said, why would I redo the whole stack if I just got the last 50 right? He goes, you're going to redo the stack. Trust me. I'm like, oh, he was an incentive to really wow. learn. And now guess what? So now I'm flying along and I have all this stuff in my head and, and they're throwing stuff at me and I'm just calm. <laughs> right? They throw an emergency at me. I know exactly what to do next. Oh, hey, what's the pressure in the hydraulic line if that happened? I'm like, it's this. They're like, okay. And I, what happened was I developed a reputation of competence. So they stopped. The instructors kind of knew. The instructors actually stopped kind of trying to uh, for, get me to make a mistake. And they started more coaching me. I watched yeah. this thing shift. Now, here's something else I observed, though. Because John so freely shared with me, my, people in my class, it was this interesting culture where we're all competing but it's also a very dangerous um, profession. I was, yeah. I, I, my seven years in, I was at six funerals, just to put things in context. Wow. And so we all helped each other. We all freely shared. We encouraged each other. It was this really neat culture. Everybody said they wanted to fly jets. And all my friends in my, my close circle all said they wanted to fly jets. And I was sharing with them what John was telling me and what I was doing. And the thing that really surprised me is that none of them put in the work that John was putting in and that he had me putting in. Mm. So they said they had this goal, but they weren't willing to put in the work of somebody like John who had show, have kind of paved the path. And, that, and then what I found out later in life is you have a lot of folks that you know, talk a big game, but you know what? They're going to put in the minimum amount of effort. And so, oftentimes that, that was my association and when I looked around at my association, I realized that it's my association that's holding me back. Not that I had to get rid of friends, but I had to up my association and the, the mindset, the attitude, their, their goals, their faith, their work ethic, whatever it happened to be, to, to challenge myself. Um, so that, that was an interesting observation also. So, John, that's fascinating. I mean, you think about this, and if you had asked me, what did he get you to do? Just guess. I could have guessed a thousand times. I never would have guessed. Oh, juggle while while rehearsing a stack of a thousand cue cards. And if you get to 50, go back to the beginning. But I think there's a principle there, right? And you and I were joking, not joking that, because uh, this is definitely not the same thing as flying a tomahawk or a jet into combat, but, um, you know, or into active airspace. But we've all been battling in a year, the last year and a bit in a way we never have in our lives and making really, really quick decisions. But that idea of prep is really interesting. And it strikes me, you know, when you're going through your thousand cue cards, I don't know whether you've seen the movie Some about becoming a sommelier, but it's very similar. They have to know, like be able to smell a glass of wine and be able to tell you it is this hill in this vineyard in France from 2006. It's like insane. Wow. And it brought me back to law school. I remember my admin law course, 72 pages of summary notes going over and over and over them again. And then I got into the exam and I wondered if I was in the right course. You know, it's like, you know, you ever have one of those exams where you're like, I studied my brains out and I think I'm in the wrong class. Oh no, I am in the right class. Like crap. Well, I this felt is that way, but usually it's because I hadn't studied, but <laughs> you and I might've had a little different college experience. <laughs> what did, what did juggling Okay, so you memorize all this stuff, and a lot of us would have stopped there. I went through my thousand cue cards, and then yeah. you're juggling while 
your friend is 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 throwing questions at you. What did that do to your brain? I mean, I think I know, but I want to hear your Well, yeah, th- take. think about it right now. Let's just say you were working on a presentation mm. and you'd rehearsed your presentation, you know, um, for wh- whatever it is, you're briefing a team, mm. right? And now I had you come in and juggle or maybe take a tennis ball and hit it against the wall, you know, as fast as you could because your brain... When you're, when you're focused on doing something physical, you're, you have to teach it to do both of these activities, something cognitive and then also something physical, two different areas. Um, I got to tell you, you know, as I got into public speaking and I took this entire kind of this concept, honestly, I sit here and, at, at my desk and I, and I write out what I want to say and I read it until it feels comfortable. But then I go on uh, an area and I rehearse and I'm putting in all the action and the arm movements and, and my facial expressions because I really want to communicate in a way that adds value to people in the audience. What I found was I would do something and then forget where I was in the speech because mm. I was sp- focused on moving. But then the movement actually came, became something that now became like almost a memory trigger to tell me where I was maybe in that message or when to pause. And uh, so it's had some really interesting applications afterwards, but you know, what it showed me was that my brain was so much more capable than I thought it was. When I started doing so well flying this plane, I'm like, wow, I don't know how he stumbled across this philosophy, um, but man, did it work. So let's talk about leadership and decision-making. In that cockpit, you had to make a lot of literally life and death decisions and you don't have a lot of time. What are, what are some principles you learned flying a fighter jet that have broader application or even forget the broader application? Like, how do you make those decisions? Because you're right. It's all those things are coming at you at once. And the natural inclination for most of us, I imagine, would be to freeze or to panic or to make an yeah. impulsive decision or to kind of just melt down in that moment because it's like, oh, I didn't think about this. So how, what, what are some principles that guide a, a pilot in, in a cockpit? You know, here, here's something I think could really help people. Back in World War II, when um, people were starting to first get into dogfights, it's an yeah. incredibly dynamic environment. The mm. best way I've ever heard it described is you're playing three-dimensional chess at 400 miles an hour and every time somebody moves, the chessboard changes. <laughs> okay? Okay. So think about yeah. this, right? You're yeah. uh, landing on an aircraft carrier at night with a pitching deck and gusty winds. You, a pilot will literally make a thousand flight inputs, corrections on, on the glide slope coming in to land. Each one of those is a decision. Yeah, and, and how? what is your runway when you're landing that? Like, it's not big, is it? Well, we have to put our, to land safely. Yeah. It is uh, 45 feet long by 20 feet wide. Oh my gosh. Now, the, when you catch a wire, the, you, you know, that yeah, you play that right out down, a couple hundred But like, feet. you better not miss that wire. That wire isn't five feet to the right or the left. That's correct. So to land safely, it's 45 feet long and plus or minus 10 feet of the center line. Wow. That's the target that I have to put my tail hook in coming in at 150 miles an hour. So there's a term that came up. It was an Air Force pilot. And it's called OODA, 
people can write this down. It's O-O-D-A. Observe, orient, decide, act, and then you repeat. So now think about this. Let's say that uh, my workforce has been, you know, they're, we're all remote working now. Mm. And I don't know how my industry is recovering. I don't know how the stimulus or the tax bill might affect my industry long-term. I don't have the information that I feel like I need right now to make a decision that's in the best interest of my company, my employees, and where I'm trying to go. So I'm observing to the best ability that I, I can how my people are handling it and change their personalities, the market conditions, and what we're trying to accomplish. Now I have to orient myself. I'm going to make a decision that's going to require people to do things. Hmm. It might require them to change. I might have people with different levels of readiness for change on my team. It might require us to let people go. How, how is that going to affect people? You know, in the, in the cockpit, I had to observe the situation and then orient. I tried to always orient myself to the perspective of the person that was across from me that I was fighting. Okay. You tried right? to see what they saw? Is that I tried to saying? either see what they saw. I know where I wanted to get to, which was behind them. Right. For the firing solution. Huh. And I'm trying to also anticipate what are they going to do? Yeah. And then the decision comes out of that. Now, in human relationships, my orientation is different. I think it's really incumbent upon me because I bring a lot of my life and my experiences and my baggage and my preconceptions and all these things into any conversation in any relationship. And I really felt for me to be the best leader possible, I have to really get to know my people. Where are they coming from? How have I, it's something I've worked on, how do I get along and work with and manage and lead people who do not share at all my core values and my core beliefs? But we're working together on a team. We're seeing that play out in society right now. This was 10 years ago. I don't know if you know a guy named Foster Freeze, but he challenged me. Yeah. That, hey, John, every month I want you to go meet with somebody who you would on the surface, never be friends with. Hmm. That's not a person you would ever hang out with because of their views, their positions, you know, whatever, who they voted for, however you want to define it. What I found was, Carrie, when I started doing that, I have made some of the best friends, the most unlikely best friends. What I found in doing that is some of those folks that we tend to kind of either judge and put in a box when I actually start to look at them as a unique person, somebody God created, he loves them. Mm. Even if they don't know him or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah. There is something awesome in there. So that was something I was really trying to understand was the context is how does this play out? How does this interaction work from people's perspective? Uh, for me, there's also a lot of you know prayer involved in observe, yeah. orient. But guess what? I have to decide. And that is, that is what's differentiating, I think, leaders today. It is incumbent upon us to be able to make a decision without all the facts. It, more now than ever. And guess what? What if you created a culture where your people, my goal has always been to, because this is how the Navy operated, push that level, push that decision-making ability down to the lowest level where the information resides to make a decision. If I was making decisions myself as the leader, the team leader, eventually the CEO, I looked at every one of those and said, is that a decision I should be making? Yeah. 
I, or is it a decision I want to be making because I'm afraid to let go? Mm. But so then I have to take an action. And th this is a cycle that repeats quickly and it's repetitive, right? Because we have to keep moving. I believe right now that the pace of change, it was, it was already accelerating. It's at a different level right now. Oh, yeah. And I heard the, uh, the CEO, I was able to sit down with this small group and it was the CEO of, uh, where was the shooting in Vegas? What was the hotel? It was the... Oh, I don't remember. I, I mean, not the well, MGM Grand. Know. Yeah. He was the CEO of the MGM Grand. So this is after they'd put all the pieces mm. back together uh, with the hotel. And he was saying, he said, you know what? As this pace of change accelerates, a leader that can make decisions in uncertainty and, and have a team that can succeed with this accelerated pace of change. It doesn't matter if your good product or service is inferior to others. If you have a core team that can operate in this pace of change, you are going to dominate your industry. Hmm. I thought that was a really interesting concept because for me, I immediately started thinking, my, how do I quit my people? Right? Decide. So then I have to make that decision and then I have to take the action. And then what our team has always focused on when if I, and this was a big transition for me focusing on really mindset, coming from that low self-image, remember the kid who quit on himself and wouldn't go to flight school. Mm. I was afraid of failing and I would cover it up with, I have a low self-image. And the reason was, and this is the biggest performance killer that we have, I think as husbands, fathers, wives, mothers, business people, and that is comparing ourselves to others. Mm. When we compare ourselves to others, we let in some really bad things. Yeah. Um, what we want to do is compete with the best version of ourselves. And I know this is something you teach people how to do. How do you become that better version of yourself? Live a full life, make better decisions because you know who you are, your values, your passions, you're in touch with your beliefs, who you want to be. Um, just a quick, can I tell you a quick story on that? Yeah, of course. Okay, so um, I was I, I got fortunate enough to coach a guy who is a sports performance coach, mm -hmm. so like LeBron James and Corey McElroy. These are his clients, and he came right. to me about building it. He wanted to build his business, even though he had some of these marquee clients. But we're kind of just having a conversation over coffee, and I say, "Hey, can you help me out? My son, he's at the bottom of the barrel for baseball. It's his dream to be in the MLB. This was uh, four years ago, so he was thirteen years old." And, and Jamie looked at me and said, hey, when your son comes off the ball field, what's the first thing you ask him? Well, pretty obvious question, right? Like, hey, how'd you hit? Mm -hmm. How'd it go? How'd you do? That's where my head how'd went. How'd you do? How'd mm -hmm. you pitch? I, uh, he goes, well, you're the problem. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, you are forcing your son to compare himself to every other teammate. Oh. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, really? He goes, try this instead. He goes, I do this with every one of my clients. When is my, Matthew is my son, when he comes off and let's say he had a terrible inning, he gets pulled from pitching after he walks four guys in a row, no strikeout, yeah. nothing. Right. And he, had, he was mad. Um, and he comes out and I go, Hey buddy, tell me one thing that you did well today. Hmm. I'm trying to get him to focus on the good stuff he did. Well, dad, you know what? I, I hit two out of three times and played really good at first base. Cause he's dwelling on the negative, right? Yeah. Yeah. We all do. And then, and then it's so easy to, because I'm observing, I played baseball, like here's the things he needs to fix. And when we 
give people advice in business. Like somebody comes up to us, we can create this dependency. If our employees know we're going to answer a question and tell people what to do, they're not really engaging with the, their best self. So I started asking um, what Jamie did with his clients. They had to actually do a, a log in a journal. What are 10 things that you've learned since the last time we were together? Now, asking a 13-year-old 10 things he'd learned from a bad game, <laughs> yeah. that didn't work. But I, you know but what One I thing out? works. I could say one thing. What is one thing you learned? When you were pitching, is there anything, like you kept throwing your, all these balls, they were low and outside. <sighs> anything that yeah dad he started learning on his own you know what i'm stepping or he's like i have no idea i'm like well next time if you have another game like that why don't you think about it by the end of that season he was voted the mvp by his by his um teammates and he's now on track to go he's uh I, he has the potential to be a d1 scholarship kind of candidate but that came from just like john foster right going and finding somebody who knows what they're talking about and then implementing what they should. There's nothing that I did great. Jamie shared that with me and I just started doing that with my son. So anyway, you act. And then if you can teach your team to look at the outcome of decisions from that perspective, that's why I shared that story. Now I go back in, observe, orient, decide, act, and mm -hmm. repeat the process. And, and then you can analyze it. Hey, how good are we at really observing asking questions, looking at the data. How good are we at orienting that decision to our, our people, our market, our industry? How good, what is our decision-making process? See, that's, that's really interesting. And I hadn't heard of UDA before, um, which is really good. So observe, orient, decide, act. When you're in the cockpit, you got to make that, that like literally microsecond decision, right? You haven't got a whole lot of time. A lot of leaders, there's debate about trust your gut. How do you how do you know what to do? You've observed and you're orienting yourself, and then you got to act. Any any insight on snap decision making in a moment like that? It's it's um, it's easy, Carrie. Just trust your gut. You really do, eh? No, trust your gut. Um. <laughs> <laughs> there it all goes. It's it blows up. It's like. I got to tell you, um, think about the demands and the time crunch and the mission of the military. Yeah, yeah. We spend a massive amount of our time on training. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, when I'm flying a low level and, and all of a sudden situations change and I'm literally a fraction of a second away from flying into a rock wall doing a, a low level. Yeah. My only, the only thing I can do is like react, but the entire OODA process happened. It just happened really fast. Yeah, yeah. That happened because there was so much training. There was so much rehearsal. There were so many mentoring sessions. Now think about it. If I'm going to go into a client meeting, let's say this is, you know, like uh, this could be one of our biggest contracts. And we're just walking in cold because things have gone good. And all of a sudden they go, well, we got another proposal here. And they're 20% less than you. And they're doing this, this, and this, and this. And all of a sudden you're just on your heels. And, and it, it really, all of it, it goes sideways. I built some very large sales organizations and I treated it just like we were going into a combat mission. We would do a pre-brief, uh, a brief, and then a debrief. And we would role play these situations. What are some of their concerns? What are their questions? 
how does this really add value all the way through their organization from the person who's buying it to their maybe their shareholders if they're public to their customers do we do we know this because if we don't know this why are we in there selling first of all yeah and just so so leaders know they would have heard the bio on the intro but you know you went from the military into fortune 500 you've run your own ventures i mean you've had a really fascinating storied career how do you prepare for that like you know you you think about the 10,000 hour rule which Malcolm Gladwell is kind of sorry he said at some point he says it got way blown out of proportion but you know that whole idea of and John Maxwell said it on this podcast if you spend an hour a day at something you can develop an expertise uh, I get the question all the time how do you produce so much content it's like well I've been doing it for a long long time and you just set aside a little bit of time every day and you make it a discipline and you make it a habit to read and learn and be curious. And, you know, you're amazed by what you could produce sometimes. Uh, it's not all helpful, but, you know, we're, we're, we're doing our best. Uh, any, any disciplines or habits on how to prepare? Because I think you're right. A lot of us are winging it when we walk into meetings. And I've done that, too, at times. So how do, how do, you, how do you ready yourself as a leader? So here's, here's the first thought that comes to my mind. Um, when I was getting out of the Navy and getting into business, my first mentor is amazing, amazing guy. We're still in touch today, 30 years later. Wow. He said, he said, John, you know what? You're, you've never been in business before you've been in the military. He goes, the key to being a business leader is understanding how to help everybody around you succeed mm -hmm. while you are on this journey of becoming um, better yourself. And he goes, here's how you're going to do that, A. He challenged me, he goes, you need to read 10 minutes, a, 10 pages a day of a book that's going to take some of the programming in your head, because I've ta I talked to him about some of my limiting beliefs and growing up, and, and he handed me How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's a great book. It is a phenomenal book. I tell you what, that book and Leadership in Self-Deception, because that is something I also, you know, my self-talk and how I observe situations. Gary Kinnaman, have I got that right? We'll it's actually from the, the Arbinger Institute. It's You're right. It is. By the Arbinger. Is. They're also, their peace process is fantastic. But literally all these books you see behind me, and I have so many more. I have been reading 10 pages a day for 30 years. Wow. There is so much that's come in my head. And then the other thing he said, and this is before Jim Rohn's famous quote of, right, you're the lowest common denominator of your five closest friends. Mm -hmm. He told me about the power of association, which made sense to me. But he goes, John, you're getting out of the military and you're going to meet a whole bunch of people, your old friends from the military or people that you're in business with, with our, with our content with what they're doing. And that does not mean it's right or wrong, but you have to choose what you want. And mm -hmm. if you want to build a business, be a successful entrepreneur, um, take a company public, you have to go find people like that and spend time with them. Ask them if they'd mentor you. And I honestly think that being vulnerable with mentors and reading and then working every day to figure out what is that one thing that I need to be doing today versus, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, overwhelm and burnout. For me, the sense of that really gets heightened when I start putting myself too far in the future. Right. If I set long-term goals, but pull myself into how do I do my best just today, like this day type compartment, put it up in prayer and say, God, what is the one thing I need to be working on today? And I'll hear something. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense, but here we go. Hmm. And I find out like that was exactly what I should have been working on. So for me, that daily habit of reading and having people around me that I trust has, has paid 
massive dividends. That's such good advice. It's a little bit like, you know, they say Dave Ramsey would tell you put $10 a day in the bank or pick your number. It doesn't look like very much, right? At the end of week one, you got 70 bucks or, you know, a dollar a day, you got seven bucks, but give it a couple decades. And I think, I think that lesson does get lost and not all of it sticks, but it's amazing how much you can remember. Cause I've, I've done a very similar thing years later. It's like, oh yeah, I pulled that random fact and this thing and this insight and this strategy at all. It all goes into that. And then the power of association, Brad Lominick talks about the difference between networking and what does he call it? He has another name for it. But he says networkers, oh, uh, connectors. So Connect, you know, a yes. networker is somebody, I'm trying to use you to get what I want. A connector is somebody who's just like, we're just connecting. So before we started you know, rolling today, uh, we both have books coming out. You're like, oh, I work with this person and this person. I gave you a, just this this uh, clothing place I found in New York. You know that that was kind of interesting. But that becomes a very easy exchange. How do how do you know you've got the right people? You kind of hinted at that before with the billionaire who was on his third marriage and doesn't speak to his kids. But how how do you know you're you're finding the right people? Because there's a ton of young leaders. Or like, John, I'd love to hang out with you, but you're probably not going to return my email or, you know, I don't live near you. So wh where do you start with that? Well, here's my advice to young leaders. Except for a rare exception, when I have reached out to people, they have responded and we've had conversations. Yeah. So two years ago, I didn't know Horst Schultz, the former CEO oh, yeah. of Ritz-Carlton. He wrote the book Excellence. I was just, I loved the book. And I reached out to Horst and we had a conversation. Hmm. And he came on my podcast and I said, that was amazing. Can you do another one? He's like, sure. I said, can you do another one? He goes, sure. And then we started talking and I said, could you write the forward to my book? And he said, sure. And what I have found is when I find some of those people, maybe they wrote an article or a book, but it's not like you just walked up to them and say, hey, Carrie, will you mentor me? You're awesome. Right, 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 right. I have to invest in the relationship. I think it's important for me to add so much value to people, even if they're older and senior, find a way, get creative, ask people. There's always a way. Um, Michael Port, he was, um, he's one of the top public speakers in the National Speaker Association. He used to be an actor in Hollywood. He was in one of the leads in Sex in the City. Oh yeah. Um, right, he's, he's an amazing, one of the best communicators I've ever met in my life. And he started a group called Heroic Public Speaking. And it's, and it's really invite only. And um, I reached out to Michael. We started developing a relationship. I'd go to conferences where I knew he was going to be, not to be this weird stalker, right? But just to spend time with him, get to know him after hours. He's now become my mentor. He's been texting me this whole time as I've been recovering with COVID saying, hey, what can I do? How can I help? Anything I can do to help with the book launch? So, Find those people that you want to invest in you because here's the, here's the secret, which is really cool. Those people you're reaching out to, just like me and just like Carrie, have had hundreds probably or at least dozens of people so into our lives. Ah, and yeah. when people reach out to me, as long as I can and we connect and we, I have the ability, I'm going to do something to help you, even if it's not a long-term relationship. And I, I, I'm going to guess you're the same, Carrie. We try, you know, to be totally transparent. We've been a little overwhelmed by the volume in the last few years. I was always one of those people who are like, I'm going to answer everything that comes my way. And it's just literally when you have millions uh, a month, it's it's insane. 
So we're trying to figure that out, but we want to do the best we can with that. And I definitely, you know, I almost have to follow Andy Stanley's do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Uh, but yeah, I'm amazed. And and the other thing too is I found super helpful is exactly what you did. Uh, like the guy, was it John Foster at mm-hmm. Top Gun School? He was just a guy who was a classmate and a classmate will always meet with you. And the guy down the road or the woman down the road will always meet with you or the person in your industry will always meet with you. And so I, I think that's great. We're actually, we're actually talking in our company about a way to open up more seats around the table so that we can have more direct access with listeners and leaders. And that, that would be great. Yeah. Well, you're bringing up a good point though, because there are some folks like I, I reached out to John Maxwell. I, I initially, after I got out of the Navy, went to Skyline Wesleyan Church. He was the pastor. Right. And he offered, he, he invited me to lunch and offered to mentor me. I'm uh, just Back getting out the of the Navy. Oh yeah. And then 94. Oh. And I'm like, okay, here's the pastor of a church. I'm a new Christian. Like, I don't really want to run like the parking lot ministry. So we're sitting there at lunch and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, I kind of pass on that, but I'll, you know, show up on Sundays. I'm like, oh my word. Later, my wife's like, oh man, I could have been a contender. Um, <laughs> but as people build those platforms, the reason that your platform is so big and John and like Michael Hyatt, I reached out to Michael Hyatt at one point, you know, for more of a mentorship relationship. When people get to that size, that that is really hard because of the value that you're putting out to so many people. Yeah. The other thing that I have not been afraid to do is invest in myself. Right. Go to a conference and pay for the VIP ticket where I could spend two days backstage with Michael Hyatt as I was building my platform. Mm-hmm. I know he's not going to mentor me, but I can get access to somebody who I've come to know and like and trust his advice. And he was incredibly helpful with me as I launched what I'm doing now. I've done the same thing with other people. Yeah. And so, you know, n- n- there is no closed door. I'll guarantee if somebody tucked yeah. into your community, listen to your content, your, as your books come out, go to your conferences, they're going to be so equipped. And then guess what? Go find that person that you've mentored who's a little more accessible and then ask them if, they, if you could just spend some time with them, have coffee once in a while. And guess oh, what? You will, if you are constantly seeking, instead of saying you deserve it, you're constantly saving, say, I want to add value so that they can add value back to me, right? Um, you're going to be just fine. Ryan Hawk was on this uh, podcast a couple of years ago and he talked about his system and he was in sales, right? So he starts this podcast. He can't get anybody influential on it. But he would send up to 80 emails, not in a harassing call the police get a restraining order way, but just very respectful <laughs> over time, right? And and I've it's 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 amazing. Like some of the guests, and I don't want to name names, but like there are times I've had to ask two, three, four, five, half a dozen times. And very respectfully and in time. And hey, I know you're busy, but if you're ever open. And I had a couple of those this summer. It was like they were too busy to be on the show. Uh, but yeah, check back with me a little bit later. And I think the difference between a successful person in that arena and one who isn't is the willingness to take no 10 times or 80 times or or whatever. And again, without being harassing or irresponsible. Um, and then you raise another really good point, John, which is what value are you bringing to the equation, right? Because I have set time aside with people and they don't come prepared. They don't come with questions, that kind of thing. And then you think, oh, I could have invested that somewhere else. 
And then if you get an opportunity, I'll give you, I'll give you two things. I, uh, and I think I can say this publicly, but I had an opportunity to be mentored by a guy I'd never heard of. Uh, this was like 15 years ago by a mutual friend. He said, hey, you're part of this denomination. I know a guy who's part of this denomination. He's in New York City. Uh, I can introduce you. And I said, no. Turned out that guy was Tim Keller. And so he would have given me a direct introduction to Tim Keller 15, 16 years ago. Took me about a decade and a half to get back there. I finally have a, a It's like me turning down John Maxwell 25 years ago. Oh, uh, man. I know. It's like one of I those things. I have a picture of him holding my book because a friend of mine brought it to him to give it to him to say, hey, this guy, I have been mentored by John from afar through his reading in his book. Yeah, but yeah. So one of these days, though, he and I are going to have a, a, a wonderful follow-up conversation. I'm it hasn't sure. happened yet. So He would love that. And then, and then I can say this publicly, but Andy Stanley, who I, I know quite well, I asked him years ago, like 15 years ago, as I was getting to know him, would he review my sermons to make me mm. a better communicator? And he said, yes. And then I got terrified. Wow. Then I got terrified because I didn't have the perfect sermon to give him. So I procrastinated and I waited. And then I asked him later and that window had closed. Darn. And it was my insecurity that got in the way. So, so there's the a doors couple, open, there, a couple things it. you said there that are so important for, I hope people hear it is as a mentee, right? Um, add value first. When somebody shares with you some advice, some counseling, some coaching, take action don't procrastinate. And I also think it's also important to like, if I were working with you and you told me to take some action and we're not supposed to meet for a couple months, cause you know, it's not like a coaching thing where we're meeting every two weeks, right? Shoot you an email. Like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. That introduction to Tim or, you know, or whatever it was went amazing. Like, I think it's really important that as a mentee, it's it's our focus. It, uh, this shows us that we honor and respect that person who's giving us advice. Because pe- I'll tell you this: with people that don't do that, the window closes pretty quick. Yep. Because probably like you, I have a lot of people that want to mentor with me, and and um, I don't have a lot of patience for that. No, it's a really good point, and I've done that on my good days. I do that with people who add value to me. I'm like, here's what I've implemented. Here's what I've done. Just to let them know. I don't owe them it, but it's like, hey, I listened. I took notes. This is what we're doing differently. And you also said something really important, John, which is invest in yourself. Um, last year, I paid you know, a meaningful amount of money to hire a corporate coach to get me through my current lid. This year, I've hired a psychologist slash performance coach who's helping me see what I can't see and figure out what I can't figure out. And in many ways, it's not an expense, that's an investment. And I think that's really, really important. And again, often you will develop relationships with those people. Uh, You know, both were for a season or are for a season, but you can email them six months later or text them, you know, two months later and say, hey, got a quick question for you. And they're always good to respond uh, to you with that. Let's talk about resilience because you hinted at it. You have COVID <laughs> right now or recovering from COVID. You also had a major um, horseback riding accident, which is just an, an unbelievable story. And then you had a, a, a softball injury, a baseball injury to your eye, right? And 
man, that's a that's a lot of stuff in 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 life. Um, tell us a little bit about about what that was like, and then I want to zone in on resilience and how do you bounce back because. I think one of the stories of the last year and a half is we're all navigating multiple crises. There's the global crisis, the economic crisis, the racial crisis in our country. There's a personal crisis, a health challenge, COVID, loved ones, um, homeschooling. Like it's just like, oh my gosh, can we take another? Can we take another hit, please? And uh, so you right now are still recovering from COVID. So talk about adversity in your life and some of the things you're learning. Yeah, you know, back to uh, the softball, what the story behind the story is that I had actually just gotten off of my second combat cruise, mm-hmm. had gotten orders to go to Top Gun. I couldn't have been more excited about life. I mean, this was my penultimate dream. And that was on the middle of the week. That next weekend, I was playing softball with a squadron team and, and I got drilled with this freak line drive in my right eye and blew out the back of the eye socket and had nerve damage. And I lost my medical. Now, imagine when your entire identity is external as a fighter pilot, a naval officer, top gun, which I didn't get to go to, um, and I couldn't find a job. So I got a job selling cell phones. So I'm going door to door, knocking on doors, hoping somebody's home. And the sounds of my dreams are flying over my head. Hmm. I was, I grew up in church. Um, I'd never really connected to any kind of personal relationship. That was one of the hardest seasons ever of my life. I was, I was so depressed. I wasn't suicidal, but I was as, probably as close as you can get. If you looked at me wrong, I would just quit. I think I quit seven jobs in my first six months. I was used to a culture of excellence, right? And I was also looking for a reason just to be angry. And here's what happened is in that period of time, I met a guy named Jeff Saavedra at a bookstore when I was looking for Something I was looking for a business book because I was Navy guy, didn't have any business. We started a conversation, and he introduced me to two of his friends. Uh, one was an attorney, the other guy was a very successful doctor. They started mentoring me, they started helping me, asking me questions What am I good at? What do I like to do? What I realized looking back on it, my entire, I, I had my entire sense of identity was external, hmm. my self image under the person I saw in the mirror was vastly different than the person God saw when he looked at me. The gap was massive. And I think the bigger that gap is, the more stress and anxiety and and challenges we have actually going through difficult times. It was these folks that actually helped me start to get on track, start to uh, understand not only who I was, but what I was good at. And it was these guys that shared the gospel with me. And they were the ones attending Maxwell's church. That's how I ended up at Maxwell's church. God showed me that, I think, to show me the power of bringing your faith out into what you do Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. Right? This guy didn't go into Barnes & Noble to run an errand for uh, you know, uh, a business partner to go witness to me. He mm-hmm. saw me, started up a conversation, and found ways he could serve me in that value. You know, as you know, like I worked, I got into a tech startup. I was literally working 90 hours a week for three years. The internet bubble popped. I was worth $14 million on paper. Wow. My stock options. 90 days later, it was, it was gone after the internet bubble popped. And I was in debt because I'd invested all my own personal money I'd, I'd put together at that time. You know, and then my accident put me in the hospital for two years. 
23 surgeries. I had a severe brain injury. This was just- uh, uh, And that happened when? Your horse accident you're talking about? September 2011. Wow. So uh, nine, just over nine years ago. Um, I came out of that accident two years later. So this is just seven years ago with no money, literally no money. And a horse Everything. threw you into a steel at a beam? full gallop at a flat out run bucked. And I went head first into a steel crawl fence. <sighs> and I don't remember hitting the fence, but I woke up on the ground into more pain that I could even describe to you. And you know that saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's not true. I'm just oh, telling you. I was beyond anything that I could handle. I could feel people holding me down and it was really hard for them. I was screaming and yelling and writhing around. I didn't realize that I was just trying to get away from the pain and this panic and this fear. I I, I broke every bone in my skull, except my jaw and my right cheekbone. I broke my neck. I, I shattered my right shoulder. And one of the bars of the fence hit me in the rib cage. I crushed the left side of my, Rib cage, one of the broken ribs punctured my left lung. So we found out later, Carrie, that from multiple doctors, what happened to me is not survivable. As a matter of fact, a guy reached out to me, it's about two years ago now, and said it was one of the doctors up there at the, uh, and said, I've come back to my faith. He'd been a, a medic in, in, in Iraq and saw stuff he couldn't reconcile and said, uh, I've totally, God has used you from afar, me watching you heal because what happened to you is both medically and physically not possible. There was so much damage. I woke up on the ground uh, right at my, that breaking point, And all of a, one of the guys said, you know, from the outside, it looked like you were just relaxing. So completely. I just saw you sink in the ground. He thought he just watched me die, but it was in that moment. I was standing in God's presence. He was standing right next to me. You had a near death experience. Would you say completely? Wow. He didn't appear. He didn't come down. What I realized, thinking about it afterwards, Carrie, he was already there. He just revealed his presence. Hmm. And as soon as he did, the power, it was, it was love, but it was power. And it was emanating from him. And I think about it, I just get these goosebumps everywhere. F- to feel this love, it was so, it was perfectly unconditional. I'd never... I've read about it. I never experienced it. Knowing in that moment that anything I'd ever done in my life, good, bad, ugly, or otherwise, anything is not even relevant to this love that he had for me right now in the present. And this love was between God and John. This wasn't some general love. And it had a weight to it as it was like emanating. It was like laying at a beach at the edge of an ocean and the waves are coming washing up over you. As a had a physical weight to it. And as I'm feeling this wash over me, this love and this peace all put together. It almost had a color to it. I almost want to say purple, but that's not correct. Um, I don't know how to describe the color. All the panic and the fear and the pain completely went away. That's what they watched externally. And I remember as soon as that power, that love touched me, and I didn't even know how bad I was damaged, the first thought that crossed my mind was I'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this. And as I rested in that and the pain dissipated, um, God spoke to me. There's a voice that came from everywhere and nowhere. And what he said was, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. 
And where I was at that time in my life, Carrie, even though I went to church, I had no idea that was Romans. I had no mm. idea. And then he said, John, he used my name, John, I'm going to heal you and use this for my glory. And he said, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He said it just like that, almost like with a joy, not, mm. not a stern parent, which I thought was pretty cool, honestly. Wow. But as soon as he said it, I knew my left eye was permanently blind. My all the bones behind my left eye shattered and severed the optic nerve. So my left eye doesn't work at all. This is just black over here. And then he left. And I opened my eyes and said to everybody standing around me, looking at me, I said, hey, God's here. You don't have to worry. It's going to be okay. And they're like, mm, I don't think so, because my head <laughs> smashed in. And the medic who's sitting next to me is like, she told me later she's a Christian and she's been a paramedic for 30 years in Montana. I was in Dem I, from Denver. I was up in Montana at this ranch and she did not expect me to live the hour until life light was going to get there. Wow. She absolutely was convinced that like game, this is game over. She was trying to prepare people. Have you ever read imagine heaven by John Burke? I have, you know, that book. Yeah. John's been a guest on this podcast and you know, I've, I've, I've looked at, I've met via video, some of the people he interviewed your experience is so consistent with so much of what he has unearthed and that overwhelming love. I mean, for those of you who are watching, I know 98% of you are listening, but like you're, you're tearing up talking about that 10 years later. Yeah. It's hard to it's describe a every day. I, and, and, you know, here, you know, it's interesting too, is you're talking about adversity, right? Hmm. I mean, going through, I had 23 surgeries no income. My wife went from being a stay-at-home mom and a homeschooling mom hmm. to having to go to work and being my caregiver. Talk about uncertainty. Yeah. And the, here's the one thing I held on to, and that was hope. Because hmm. I finally understood God's nature. Somebody asked me in that moment, how would you have described him? I'm like, oh, what a great question. Only mind that popped, the only word that popped into my mind was friend. And then I read in scripture because I this is the first time after my accident that I read the Bible cover to cover was Jesus wants to call us a friend. And a friend knows his master's business. And then he tells us what it mean, what it takes and what it means to be his friend. Hmm. But think about that. All things work together for good, right? Maybe not my good in the hmm. short term, but God's good but and God's good. plans. Yeah. And yeah. I gotta tell you. Sometimes the pain even afterwards, I, 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 I was a little bit, you know, I, my, my own ups and downs, I was angry, mm -hmm. hurt, upset, like, you know, Lazarus come forth, right? You know, you're good to go, <laughs> right? Leper healed, boom, done. John, stand up. I, there was messages. I was in ICU for five weeks and then at Craig Hospital with a brain injury for 20 months. Friends of mine told me, you know, I'm sitting there in ICU and this is like a couple days in and I'm texting my business, my you know, people that work for me and say, don't cancel those meetings two weeks out. I'm going to be good. I had a very different understanding. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it, though, it is the process and the journey I had to go through. I had to slow down so God could really teach me some things. And get me to understand who, not who I was, but who he made me to be. And for me, those were so different still that it was a process. And he knew that's what I needed. And I wouldn't change a thing today, but going through it, what I, what I focused on was that hope that guess what? Tomorrow might be better than today. 
Yeah. And that next month will probably be better than this month, but next year will definitely be better than this year. I was times where literally I was staring at the clock, praying to the Lord in so much pain and despair because of my situation, but pain, physical pain. I would look at the clock and just get through five minutes. That was my next benchmark. God just kept me through five minutes. How do you, and not that we're going to solve the theodicy (laughs) on this podcast, but how do you reconcile that reality, right? If God is so good, why is there suffering the theodicy? How do you reconcile that reality of your recovery and the love that you felt in those few minutes in that experience? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, why does, you know, Jesus say, you know, in this life, we will experience tribulation. Yeah. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. This world, our 90-year lifespan, 100-year lifespan compared to eternity, it's literally not even a blip. So what is the purpose of our life here on earth? It's a big question. Yeah. You've devoted your last decade to that question. Yeah, well, and here's here's what I've come to realize is I felt God's love for me. I knew, did he cause the accident? I honestly, in my heart, do not think so. Did he know the accident was going to happen? Yep. Could he have prevented it? Yep. Why didn't he? So the question I have to ask myself is, even though that was hard and horrible, do I trust God enough to know that he's not going to give me an explanation, but he is going to walk with me through anything I have to face? Hmm. That in walking through those adversities, there is a reason. It's like my, my vine is bearing fruit, but what if it could bear 10x that fruit if I cut it off and let it grow back stronger? Hmm. And when it grows back stronger, it gets cut off again. Like COVID, we walked into COVID. I never knew I was going to be that guy. Hmm. I was in ICU for a week. I'm what they call a long hauler. I got, from what the doctors tell me, I have permanent damage to my lungs and my heart. My wow. life at 54 years old might be, if this doesn't change, completely different than anything I ever expected. My goodness. And the worse it got, the more excited I got. I'm like, you know, Lazarus died or was he only mostly dead? Because guess what? Jesus raised him from the dead and we're still talking about him 2000 years later. (laughs) Yeah. When stuff happens, it's like we're giving God the ability to do even bigger things that glorify him. That is my focus. So I got to tell you, Carrie, something that's shifted in me over time. In the beginning, it was praying about God. What is your, first of all, it says knock on the door. And I, I would, what, I'd go to the door with stuff that I wanted, mm-hmm. not really consulting God. So he's not going to open the door for things that are like my desires unless they're in alignment with his. So that would be, you know, kind of luck of the draw. And then I started, you know, but I, I, my prayer has switched instead of God, here's my will and help me with that. Or God, then it shifted to God, what is your will for me? And now it's completely shifted. So God, reveal your will and what you're doing in the world Mm -hmm. and show me what I need to do, who I need to become, who you have already set out in front of me to become so that I can join you in the work that you're doing in the life of Carrie, in the life of my neighbor, in building this business, in that 
customer that I don't like, who's an atheist, who's just nasty. And he won't let me fire him as a customer. <laughs> what is why, you know, everything has a purpose. And I got to tell you, as I've moved in that direction, it has completely changed my context. And, and here's the other thing though, too, when I was in Craig hospital, that severe brain injury, I saw people that focused more from a place of hope and a place of victory, even if it was eventual victory down the road or that place of being a victim or letting myself dwell on regrets and despair. And I saw what happened to them and they spiraled down into such a dark, scary place. I was honestly scared to death that if I allowed myself to those kind of negative thoughts, I would get those results and those results scared me that, you know, so, you know, it all came together to be able to move through this in a way. And then seven years ago, I had no idea what I was going to do. I couldn't work full time. I could literally work eight hours a week. I could not run a company anymore. God led me into coaching. I could literally meet with one or two people in a week. That's all the energy I had. Be, I, but I mean, most likely to succeed, no money, no health, chronic pain, no network. And a year later, I had 14 clients and we had as much month as money. <laughs> if that makes sense, right? We met our cash flow matched. We stopped going backwards. Yeah. And what's happened now, just following God, being in the present, looking for those small steps each day, you know, observing, deciding, acting in consultation with the Lord. In the days that I forget to do that, you know, the results aren't always what I hope for. So and how are you spending your time these days? You have a podcast, you got a new book coming out, you're doing leadership, you're speaking. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and why did you write On Purpose With Purpose? Well, you know, this, so I wrote On Purpose With Purpose for a simple thing. What I realized was, is that God had walked me through a process. To understand, um, you know, we're both, we do a lot of work in leadership, Carrie. And here's what I, here was my observation. You know, in, in America, we spend on average 25 billion with a B a year on leadership training. Wow. I didn't know that. Per year for the last, I think it's been 10 years. Wow. And you look at the Gallup results on engagement and satisfaction and purpose and anything you want to look, how, Barna's numbers, nothing's changed. So yeah, we have a we seriously have a leadership crisis, and we're seeing it because we focus on the why and the what and the how, mm. and those are very important. I'm not discounting those. What I found was for me is there's something foundational underneath all of those, and that is who you are. Mm. And as God helped me to, un and in the past, I was always looking for that purpose that calling that, you know, like, and it felt to me like it was like this buried treasure and I wasn't equipped to find it. It was so frustrating. I think that's right before my accident at the top of my career, I was literally in a place I describe in the book as just smoldering discontent because I was just living out of alignment of really who I really was. And I just didn't know that guy. And I didn't know I could get to meet him, you know, that, that better version of me. Hmm. And so it was this process of me understanding who I was, what my true north was, really understanding where I wanted to go and why, and understanding exactly where I was now. Just like a pilot, I have to know those things, my, where I am, 
where I want to go. And I have to have a navigational reference to even make a course correction along the way. And hmm. what I realized was this had become the framework of how I worked with my clients, whether it's a, a huge Fortune 50 company or at the church down the road. And so I wrote the book and actually a lot of my God has led me into working. It's interesting because I resisted it at first into working outside of the world of the church. Mm-hmm. Most of my clients today are traditional business people. They are not believers. I believe that's where God has been sending me. So I wrote the book intentionally is like a translation from what I call the stained glass to the plain glass. <laughs> you know, I get, I, you know, I just sent it recently to a general at the Pentagon. He's going to, you know, read through this entire book with his entire team. I wrote it so that it would do that. And you could hand it to anybody. Silicon Valley, you know, executive friend of mine, not a believer is going to be going through this book with his team. So I started the eternal leadership podcast, um, wrote this book. I'm doing a lot of speaking and coaching and training. And we're just, my dream kind of like, I think a lot like yours, right. Is to create a movement where people understand that you can actually step into a life worth living. One that's just fully alive. You're fully activated. And then when you do that for yourself, even if you're just taking a small step into that, you can start doing that for others. Mm -hmm. And we can start seeing the value in others. We can start, you know, the, the, the kingdom mandate gets lost, right? It's easy to just go to church and come home and know that, you know, we're good. But what about serving others, serving the widows and the poor, taking, you know what? I, I calculated if, if just, Kingdom-owned businesses here in Denver took 1% of their gross revenue to fund amazing causes, inner-city education, the poor, homeless. Nobody would ever have to do a rubber chicken dinner ever again, Carrie. Mm. Seriously, wow. the money is there. It's sitting on the sidelines undeployed because we are not activated. All these problems that we see around us, not only can we do amazing business, profitable business, mentor and disciple our employees, our customers, our vendors, and everybody in our whole ecosystem, we can also do good through doing good business and having this eternal impact on the lives of those people that are around us. And that's what God's put in my heart. And I just want to be a small part or a catalyst um, in that person that's going to go out and just, you know, run with a movement like that. So I'm, um, as you can tell, right, I, my energy, when I'm, I love this stuff because it's why I believe I was given a second chance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's why I believe that I'm not dead because God is moving right now big time. We might not see it or feel it watching the news, but trust me, he's up there. Not Did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? <laughs> right? So I he's have looking, not heard that. That's good. Right? That's so good, he's looking John. down right now, smiling. He's going, guys, I got this. Yeah. Trust me, just do this today. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be, it's going to work out. Just- well, I want to leave it here because you've been amazing. And uh, for those of you who aren't watching, you've been on oxygen this whole interview. I can't believe it. Yeah. Like, this is this is incredible, and uh, we'll be praying for you. Um, the long haul on COVID is not fun from what we know so far. So we're, we'll be praying for you. Uh, John, how do you find hope every day? I mean, you have had a lot of setbacks and had to reinvent yourself in the last decade and the whole deal. And now, you know, boom, you're on your feet in COVID. You got a book coming out. There's a lot of discouraged leaders listening right now. You want to just give them something practical or helpful that they could do now to keep themselves in the game, because I'm, I'm perfectly convinced a lot of us will be done with ourselves before God is done with us. The first thought I had in that ICU room that I was aware of 
was uh, when I woke up was that I was going to die, even though I'd just been in God's presence. And I knew then, and I was convinced that next weekend was going to be my funeral. So I started actually started playing the tape. Hmm. And what was everybody going to say? And I asked myself a question, had I lived a life so the use of my life would outlive my life? And I realized I had not done that. I knew from this inheritance standpoint, what I was going to leave to my family would be enough. Um, but I started thinking about legacy, Carrie. What have I left in my wife and in my kids? So as I recovered, my first focus for me was, because things were rocky before that, was to have the marriage that I always dreamed of. Hmm. One of the things I did, maybe this will give some folks some hope. I wrote an obituary that I want my wife to say from her heart someday when I do pass. And I wrote one for each one of my kids, and I have not shared it with them, but I've shared it with some of my closest wingmen, my confidants, because I want to live a life that those words are said. And in doing that, our family has been restored mm-hmm. and healed. COVID was one of the biggest blessings our family ever had. My three adult sons, my daughter-in-law, my grandson, my wife were here for five months in my house under my roof. We never had an argument. We never had strife. Every night we worshiped, we played games, we cooked together. It created a foundation that this family, I think, will be building on for the rest of our lives. Wow. And I think that's what gave me hope is looking at those things right in front of me and just making small steps toward it. And for me, it started with my marriage and my relationship with my boys. Mm -hmm. So I would say pick what is most important to you. That one thing that God is just putting on your heart and put your ego aside and let God help you just take a small step toward making it a little gooder. And I think in doing that, you can just celebrate a little win. And honestly, that's what gave me hope because I saw things trending toward a place that I didn't even know at the time how good it could be. Wow. Well, this has been inspiring. <laughs> Give me a lot to think about. And uh, John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate you and what you're doing and and for uh, helping me with the book and writing and writing about it. And you took a look at the book when it was oh, coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm excited for you oh, and pumped awesome. to see this. It releases. Give us the date. This comes April out April 27th. It's gonna be out. My my goal is to hit a bestseller because I want to get this in the hands of people and be part of creating that movement that changes how we lead and how we show up. Um, and I think we can literally change the world doing that in the next well, year or two. I on really purpose do. with purpose, John Ramstead, thank you so much. Hey, John, we're cheering for you as you recover. Uh, man, I'll tell you, I was so inspired by his story. And that whole thing about like juggling while memorizing, like that is fascinating. And uh, there's something there because, you know, so much of your leadership is muscle memory. It's your ability to think about multiple things at the same time and not panic in the moment. So I I just thought that was great. Hey, if you want show notes, uh, we got them for you. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 410. They're absolutely free. We also give you transcripts, quotes, uh, some insights that we pulled from the podcast and links to everything that we talk about, including our partners. So if you want to check out what World Vision has for you and Danielle Strickland's free series, make sure you go to worldvision.org forward slash carry. And of course, our good friends at Pro Media Fire, they are helping so many churches crush it when it comes to digital media and not just churches. If you're a business leader, not for profit, check them out. 
promediafire.com forward slash growth will get you there. Well, it's time for what I'm thinking about in just a minute. And I am thinking about uh, some cultural predictions for the 2020s, how they're going to shape our world. Uh, That's one of the reasons I wanted to have John on and talk about crisis decision making. Because as you listen to this, we're back into another 30-day lockdown. It's like, is this thing ever going to go away? Apparently, well, it will. But like, what? Are you kidding me? North of Toronto. Yep. Another 30-day lockdown. It's like, okay. So how do you make decisions when things are continually changing? And talk about that. And want to give you a preview of what's ahead. So just wrapped up a great conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. And we talk all about your Enneagram number in stress and so much more, the difference between fake authenticity and true vulnerability. Here's an excerpt. You know, I remember, you know, there was a period in the church, you know, when you'd go and you'd hear some pastor, but it was outside of the church too, when everyone was talking about quote unquote authenticity. Yeah. You know, we want to be an authentic church. I want to be an authentic pastor. And I'm, you know, as a, you know, I'm a, I was a pastor and I'm, I'm a therapist. You know, whenever I hear people saying, I just, I want to be authentic. I'm usually like, you understand, don't you? That when you try to be authentic, you're automatically being inauthentic. You're, 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 <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? I know what you mean. And, yeah. and, and so you, sometimes I'll hear people talk and there's this kind of strategic transparency. It's like, I want to tell you about my, you know, I have this addiction or I have this, right? Mm. You know, and it's a little bit like I get the sense that that just feels a little bit like strategic transparency. Like, like you're kind mm-hmm. of taking a shortcut and making it sound like vulnerability, but it's not really. It's just always good to have Ian back on. So that's next time on the podcast. We also have Annie F. Downs, Tim Keller, Francis Chan, Phil Cook, Simon Sinek. So excited for that. Gordon McDonald is coming back. You guys love Gordon McDonald. So do I. Amy Edmondson. We just booked uh, Jean Twen. She's been a researcher that I've been following for a long time. And so excited to get her on about the next generation and anxiety and a whole lot more. But now it's time for what I'm thinking about. So let's talk about what the 2020s is going to be like. And I've been doing a lot of reading, a lot of thinking. I've, I've read the, and this is just like, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to do the best I can to try to prepare myself and perhaps you for what's ahead. Uh, there's a great book that I just finished up. It's called The Storm Before the Calm by George Friedman. I may try to get him on this podcast. And it's all about the coming crisis of the 2020s. You know, we all long for things to get back to normal. I mean, as a lockdown was announced in Toronto and Ontario, Canada, I was like, are you kidding me? And like, we had plans to go see family, the whole deal. It's like, yeah. And what if, what if actually our future is going to be unstable like that? Yes, we will get beyond COVID and it will probably happen this year. But here's what I'm thinking about predictions. Uh, I believe the current instability will continue. Yep, COVID is going to disappear, but we're moving into a new political, economic, and social, and even cultural paradigm long before COVID. You know, I think politically, economically, socially, culturally, as America and the West moves into greater post-Christendom and post-modernism, things are really, really changing. And so that kind of predictability that you and I rely on, like think about the housing thing, what's going on with that, what's happening with the stock market. I mean, there's just some weirdness going on in the economy right now, growing income inequality that I am deeply concerned about. Uh, that, That all leads to instability. And so I think we need to have the ability to to pivot. I know a lot of you are tired of that word. Don't get too tired of it because it's going to be around for a while and to adapt and you need to be agile. 
Uh, agility is the best antidote to instability. And so if you can change and continue to change, well, then you're going to be set up well for the future. Here's another thing I'm thinking about. People will act more selfishly. Um, there is a, a post-pandemic surge coming. I mean, people are buying up houses. They're, they're buying stocks. I mean, people are pre-booking their vacations. They're hoarding things like you can't get a bike, you can't get a boat, you can't get a campsite in my country. You know, SUVs are sold out. Sea uh, dews are sold out. It's like, are you kidding me? Like people are just kind of going crazy, and and so they're breaking rules and they're doing some hoarding. I mean, it started with toilet paper, but post pandemic, they're still hoarding all those things I just mentioned. They're jumping lines for vaccines, and it's sort of like every person for themselves. And as you probably already realized as a leader, guess what? Self centered people are also angry people which makes it really difficult to deal with. So for leaders, the implications are huge. For starters, here's what it means. Loyalty is going to continue to be fickle. Okay, so people you could count on in a church context to never miss a Sunday or in a gym context to work out five times a week, uh, they may be gone to the mountains or doing whatever they want to do or to the ocean for a little while longer. And the best way to combat this is not to try to change others, but focus on changing yourself. As a leader, it's critical for you to get out of your own filter bubble to lead well and to really say, okay, what can I do for these people to serve them and stay true to the mission? And then another thing you would do is get out of your own selfishness. I can be profoundly selfish and you can't really helpfully address the selfishness of others if you yourself are selfish. Okay, I want to share one more. I've got more on my blog, by the way, if you want to read it over at kerryneuhoff.com. But I, I want to end here, and that is that the moral, theological, and philosophical questions will become more intense and important. So think about, in the face of instability, uncertainty, the rise of technology, I think AI is going to be a big thing over the next decade. We, we touch on that a little bit. I want to have a full episode or two dedicated to that in 2021. But uh, I've been also dipping into Walter Isaacson's new book, The Code Breaker, which is about Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna's gene editing sequence CRISPR, if you've heard of that, C-R-I-S-P-R, which is short for, are you ready? Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeat. I have no idea what that means, but I'm trying to learn, okay? Do not understand, did not do well in science, but that doesn't mean I can't learn. But what it means is you have the ability to genetically change our RNA. And what that means is you can do designer babies. What that means is you can perhaps do some gene editing so that you develop a natural immunity to certain diseases, including COVID-19 down the road, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that creates all kinds of philosophical and theological questions and moral questions. You think about AI, right? Self-driving cars. Who do you kill? Who do you save? Uh, they are, you know, engineers are programming that into our vehicles right now. Now, here's my concern. We're not doing particularly well when it comes to deep thought, philosophy, and theology in the church these days. We tend to be reactionary, temporary, political. Uh, we have poorly thought out rants that we just post to social media. But it's like, guys, we need to go deeper. We need to to really think from first principles. And if you listen to uh, the Adam Grant conversation, episode 405 on this podcast, which so many of you have raved about, Man, just go back to that and like imagine that quality of thinking, that openness of dialogue, the maturity in the conversation that Adam brought. And if we start to model that in the church, Adam said, and you know, this is a direct quote out of the podcast, I think there would be a rush to go into ministry today. Now, you know, you want to be reactionary, political, shallow, ideological. No, you're going to you're going to repel the best and the brightest uh, because like attracts like. 
So what you need, what we need is some breakthroughs in philosophy and some thinkers and uh, theologians who can keep up with the changing culture. So uh, the more hyper-individualized and hyper-polemicized we are, uh, the harder it will be to have a meaningful dialogue. So what can you do as a leader? Well, um, get out of the weakly formed, strongly held opinions that dominate so much of dialogue today and then become a student. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a philosopher. I took philosophy, but, you know, I, I want to deepen my thinking. I, you know, if I've got 25 years ahead of me where I can contribute to the leadership space, I want to read things I don't understand, like, you know, Codebreaker and by Walter Isaacson. I, I want to try to understand. I'm reading some old theology as well, ordered some Kierkegaard, ordered some Teresa of Avila, um, looking like just just start to really think outside your field rather than just trying to get to Sunday or trying to get to the next whatever you're trying to do. And uh, here's another thing you can do. Meet with someone outside your area of expertise. You know, maybe meet with a physician and ask them questions. Uh, meet with a plumber, a mathematician, an architect. Take them out to a lunch and learn. Work on something together. And basically expand your mind because deep leadership will be up to the challenge. Shallow leadership won't. So I think that's where all the opportunity is. And we're all kind of leading a startup these days, aren't we? I mean, we're in a brand new world. And so I think I think if you're you're open and you're learning and you're a student, you're going to do well in the future if you're kind of hanging on to the past and just angry about everything. And I have my days where I feel like that sometimes. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder. So anyway, I've got uh, a written version of this and a lot more over at kerrynewhoff.com. Hey, we send about 80,000 leaders a day, a little nugget of leadership wisdom that links to some deeper thoughts like this. If you want that, you can go to kerrynewhoff.com forward slash email to sign up. In the meantime, it's such a privilege to do this with you. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, be encouraged. We're cheering for you. Our team is working to try to produce resources that really, really help you. And uh, we're really grateful for you, leaders. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.